Hello and welcome to another The Analysis interview. My name is David Seymour and I'm very excited to be joined by Damien Camoli. Damien doesn't really need an introduction, but nevertheless, I'm going to give him one. He has worked as a scout for Arsenal and in an incredibly successful period for the club, which was a time where they brought in lesser-known talents such as Kolo Torre, Emmanuel Boué and Gael Clichy, and they became key parts of a side that was one of the biggest teams in Europe. Following this, Damien worked as a technical director at San Etienne, director of football at Tottenham Hotspur, as a sporting director once again at San Etienne, before moving on to become the director of football at Liverpool and most recently Fenerbahce. That is obviously a very impressive CV there, Damien, and I apologise if I missed anything out. Um, try my best to give sort of an, just a brief overview of your career there, but it would be great to get a little bit more background on yourself, your background in football, and how you ended up where you are today. Uh, right, so... I hope you I hope I won't take too long doing all this, uh describing <laughs> all this. Um but when I, I, I grew up from you know, from the age of fourteen, fifteen, uh, my dream was not to become a professional footballer, it was to be to become a coach. And my idols were coaches and not footballers. So I think I already I always had in mind this thing of getting into some, you know, either coaching or management at the time. Uh, and then as I was playing in the academy at Monaco, I was 17 or 18, I started to get my coaching badges. Um, and then I was very lucky that, you know, I, I strongly believe in life, you need luck and you need the l- lucky break. Uh, and I got a very lucky break at the time uh, where I was not I was not very good at, as a player or not good at all. And I knew it. Um, <laughs> and I was given the opportunity to coach at Monaco in the academy. From a very young age, I was supposed to coach the under 10 team. And then there was an issue with the under 16 coach team. And the chairman at the time told me, you know, can, could you, you are the only one that is available. And we've got a problem with the under 16s. Could you take the under 16 team for about a month, the time we find uh, a proper experienced coach? Um, and, you know, the reason we put you there is because uh, we've paid for your coaching badges and you have your coaching badges. so. Um, that's that, you know, that can you take the team for, for a month? I said, yes. And then I stayed four years, uh, instead of a month. So that was an incredible experience. Uh, wow. and then, um, at the same time, I was going to law school in Nice, you know, Nice and Monaco is only 22 kilometers between the two cities. So I wanted to still have a university background for two reasons. The first one, I was not sure I was going to make it in football. I knew the only way I was going to make it is being a coach. And I, and my dream, my only dream at the time, at the time was to be a youth coach. I had no other ambition. Uh, and I was passionate about it. Um, and then, and then going to law school, you know, I thought if, if, if I cannot make a, a living in football, I, I will still have some university background. And the second reason is because I knew going to a university, uh, especially law school, would give me a kind of structure in my work, even if I had to work, you know, if I had the luck to, to work in football, it would give me some structure in the way of I would approach things, in my thinking, in my thought process. Um, so that, well, I, you know, I kept doing my coaching badges, I kept coaching at Monaco. At one point, I was in charge of, of uh, uh Five teams, uh, two under 16 and five and under 10. Uh, that lasted for about eight or nine months. Um, and it was a time when academies in France, uh, you were, you know, one man band. So I was scouting. I was doing fitness work. I was, 
fitness coach, scouting, goalkeeper coach on Wednesday afternoons, uh, and then taking the team the oh. other days and, 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 and managing or coaching at least two, maybe two to four games per weekend on several wow. age, age groups. Um, so that was an incredible experience. Obviously, I was even more lucky. It was even a bigger lucky break that Arsene was the manager of the first team at the time, uh, Arsene mm-hmm. Wenger. And then he took me under his wing. And uh, as he told me many years later, you know, you, you, you were pestering me so much with questions that I thought, <laughs> <laughs> this guy has got to have something with football. So, um, and then... And then once I graduated from law school, um, I got a job offer to go and coach in Japan. So uh, mm-hmm. I went to Japan for for a year. I had a, a three years contract that I had a break at close at the end of every season. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I coached the under 18s in the national championship over there, which which was an incredible experience, as you can imagine. Um, I was very young as well. I think I was 21 or 22. Um, and then Arsene got the, the big job at Arsenal. So he left Japan. Um, and then I went to see him and I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, if I'm very successful in the first season, Arsenal, you know, yeah, you, you could join me. I said, fine. And then he had a very good season, the first season. Um, or the season, you know, that everybody was, was saying he will fail and he had, he, he had a very good season. Uh, so I, I break up my, break up my contract in Japan and then, uh, uh, Arsene introduced me to the chief guy, Arsenal, and he said to the chief scout over lunch, I will always remember this. He said that yeah, the chief scout was Steve Rowley at the time, who did an incredible job at Arsenal. I learned so much working under him. Um, and he said, Steve, I, I understand you are sick and tired to go to France every weekend, if not twice a week or three times a week. And Steve said, Oh, boss, you know, can you send me to another country than France? Because I only go to France. And Arsene pointing the finger and he said, well, I think Damien could help you in France. And Steve turned around to me and said, can you scout? And I thought, no, I probably can't, but I can't say this. <laughs> so, so I said, of course I can scout. He said, I think we were, it, was, it was a Wednesday or Thursday, we were at the uh, Sopran house that Arsenal were using at the time because their training, da- down, their training, training ground burned down. So uh, they were using London Colney as a, for the pictures and Sopwell House, the mm-hmm. hotel in St. Albans, as, as, a, as, a, as a base. Uh, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday. He said, could you go to see that game on Friday? I said, of course. I had no idea what I was, what I was doing or oh what I was, I was supposed to do. And uh, but I said, yeah, I always, I always think in life, you know, you have to say yes. When people give you a break, whatever, drop everything. And just and, and just take it, take the opportunity. And to this day, I do the same. Um, so that's it. That's how I ended up going to see my first game. <laughs> and uh, they said, we'll pay you some of the expenses. And then they were happy with the first report and then the second report. And and, uh, and then after a few months, they said, can you go to abroad? I said, yes. So they sent me to Portugal. And can you go to Africa? And can you go to South America? And, and I think the first season, they said, no, it's not. I think they really tested me. Uh, and then they got rid of uh, of a person who was kind of uh, UK, um, for head of foreign scouting in a way. And then mm-hmm. they gave me his job. And then I stayed there for seven years, uh, learning my trades and having the look and the privilege to work under Arsene and Steve Rory and learning a lot from David Dean as well, uh, who, who was the vice chairman of Arsenal at the time. 
Um, and during that process, I, I had quite a job, quite a few job offers from being a, a head coach in Russia or or um, a chief scout in France with a view to become mm-hmm. sporting director. And every time I said to me, no, no, it's not the right thing for you to do. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. Uh, you should stay. You should stay. I said, okay. You know, the day you feel I'm ready to go, you you know, and I've got the right offer. Uh, we can talk about it. And then Saint Etienne came and uh, and offered me the job of sporting director. I think I was only 32 or 33, uh, mm-hmm. maybe even younger. Um, and then I went to Seattle and I said, okay, that's the job offer. He said, okay, this time you have to take it. Uh, and then I left and I, I went to Saint Etienne. That was my first job of sporting director. Um, and then the rest, you you summarized it, you know, in your in your, in your introduction. That's that's absolutely fascinating. Something I'd love to jump on just to begin with. Um, you mentioned that your idols growing up were coaches. I just I'd love to know who those idols were, and then also how that impacted your own coaching style. Uh, well, first of all, I had the role model on on on. I was about to say my adult set, but you know, Arsene being in charge of the first team at Monaco. Uh, I could, that, that was later on when, not, not when I was 14 or 15, but that was later on, uh, you know, I, I, when I was a youth player, I was always trying to catch up the first team training, uh, sessions. Uh, and then when I became a, a youth coach after that, you know, I was trying, so we were training in the afternoon and then, and then, um, in the morning, rather than go to law school, very often I would skip law school, make sure I had somebody to pick up the, uh, the the courses for me and the lectures uh and that i could catch up on later on and then i watched the training session of the first team in the morning uh and that was an incredible experience and i had access you know when training was behind closed doors like preparation of semi-final champions league against ac milan arsene would let me in and before the biggest games he would let me in and he would let me into his office i mean it was just incredible uh, learning process for me, um, be able to ask, you know, I, I very, I mean, very often he said, this, you're going too far. I can't give you that information. And I thought, okay, well, fine, no problem, but I'll try my leg next time. <laughs> so, you, so that, that, that was great. And also, uh, I was also very lucky because at the time that Monaco had players such as, you know, Lilian Turam, who ended up being world champion, Joe KF, world champion, Emmanuel Petit, world champion. Uh, I coached Thierry Henry when he came, you know, for a few games and a few training sessions because I was also at some point assistant of the under 17. Um, and then as being assistant of the under 17, Thierry was with the under 17. So when, when you spend, you know, you're, you're learning your trades and with one of the best managers in the world and, and four or five players will end up being world champion, you get a mix of what a top player should be. Uh, whether he's young, like when Thierry was 16, or, or more senior pro, like like Turam or, or Jokaev or George Weah as well. Um, and then at the same time, I, I, I could learn about coaching. So that was an incredible experience. And I think my before that, I think I, I was really, I, I was probably the, 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 thinking back, I had a fascination for for Aysimian and Arigosaki at the time. Um, you know, I remember the the final in in Barcelona against Tewa Bucharest, the Aysimian Tewa Bucharest final. Uh, yeah. You know, for me, Saki revolutionized football, European football in the 80s. Um, 
So you, it was probably, you know, the, the one I was looking at the most. Um, sure. And yeah, I will say, yeah, I will say Saki, uh, because what he, he turned Italian football into something different and then he turned European football, European football into something different. So along with your background as a player and as a coach, how important are things like that to you when you're looking at someone who's working as a scout or even higher for them to have some sort of background in football? Do you think that's important? No. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no. If your your if your question is, do you need to be? Do you have to uh, to to have to? Uh, do, do you need a, a scouting um, a playing background to be able mm-hmm. to make it into some management position or coaching mm-hmm. position or? Or executive position. I think the answer is no. I was, you know, I had no career really. I, I stopped. I was 19, and the reason I stopped is because when they offered me the opportunity to coach in Monaco, I knew I was not good as a player and I had no chance to make it at the professional level. So uh, I will certainly not define myself as a as a as a good player. I was lucky to be around good players, but I was not a good one myself. And my playing career is something I almost never use in what I do or or when I speak to people. Uh, and I, you know, in in in, in these the, the days at the moment, it, we always we constantly talk about being inclusive and diversity. And um, it's interesting because it's a concept I've applied for many 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 years without really being able to name it. So I've always said to people, the, the scout who brought me, uh, Jordan Anderson and Gareth Bell, he used to sell postcards, right? So he, he, he never had a professional career. He was a part-time wow. scout at some point. I made him a full-time, full-time scout. And I've always tried to balance people who used to play with people who, who did not play. Uh, and I've got as much respect for people who make it, make it to the top level who didn't play that for the ones who had a fantastic career. Uh, but I think that, I think diversity is, is in any team, whether it's a management team or a scouting team, I think is key. Um, uh, and I, I and, and at Bacci, I tried to do it as well. So I wanted to explain the scouting team and I felt, and I told the scouts, I said, there are too many of you. No, I said, I, I didn't say too many. I said, we've got enough scouts. With a data background, with a video analysis background, we need uh, scouts with a, a, a playing background, and they agreed mm-hmm. to that as well because I wanted to bring different voice to the team. Uh, yeah. So I think it's about balance. I think the right balance. Interesting. Um, at what point in your sort of uh, upbringing in football was your first introduction to analysis? Was that when you were as an academy player? Or was that way further down the line? So that's, it's, that's, that one is interesting because I, I was thinking about this before coming on the, on the podcast today. Uh, again, you know, my, my luck of being at the right place in the right time. I, I remember when it must have been 1993 or 1994, uh, Arsene set up a program in Monaco with the first team players where in collaboration with the university, I think it was university from Nice. Uh, so he had a psychologist coming in every week to speak to players. So they will review the game together with no coach, uh, no, obviously not the manager, no assistant coach, just the psychologist and the player. And they will review the game and, the, and they will get the player to talk about his game. And I attended, I attended a couple of those sessions. 
that were absolutely amazing. And I think that was that was probably my first um the first time I the first time I saw something that came close to analysis. Uh I think the psychologists and us and we're looking into something like behavior and decision making uh in players, you know, trying to change it or trying to improve it or trying to get players to express themselves. In a way it was empowerment before empowerment empowerment, wasn't it? It's the word that we've been using in performance for a few years, but but it's something that 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 you know people thought about before, even though they didn't name it that way. Um and then after that, um at Arsenal we you know we we uh, in ninety I'm sorry, 96 or 97, um, I attended, I was, I was visiting Arsene from Japan uh, and by coincidence. And then uh, there is this company. So in the morning he said, uh, he, I remember him saying, oh, I've got a meeting this afternoon. So um, if you want, you can come in. It's a company from France. They're coming to show me a product. I don't know exactly what they want. I don't know who they are. But uh, if you're interested, come into the meeting. So of course, <laughs> I was. <laughs> so I got into the meeting. And he was he was frozen, so it was the first ever presentation that frozen did to an English club. Uh, and then well, I'm watching the screen and all those dots moving on the screen, linked to videos, you know, and data. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to change the face of of football. And Arsene, and then I remember on the way back going to his house and uh, you know in the car, and I told him, I said, what did you think? He said, it's just unbelievable. It's, it's going to change the way we work. So. Uh, so then, then when I, Arsenal, Arsenal took to Prozon, and then they used to come. We we didn't have a, a video analyst at the time, but they used to come. Uh, so his assistant coaches were doing, you know, clips on on tapes or, or and then and then video tapes and then DVDs, and then Prozon Prozon used to have an analyst. Their analyst mm-hmm. used to come into Arsenal's office once a week, wow. showing him, uh, you know, different clips. Um, uh, so it was it was very interesting, obviously, but it, it, compared to what we do now, I mean, it's, it's, it was nowhere near. Mm. And then uh, in 2004, when I joined Saint Etienne, we appointed a coach who, uh, five years before, had won the the league with Bordeaux. Um, and he, he he came to Saint Etienne and he said, uh, "I want to come with one assistant." So we said, "Okay." And then I want to come with uh, another assistant who is in charge of video. I said, okay, that's interesting. So um, this is the first time I saw actually someone full-time, purely dedicated to uh, to video, to analysis. And that was in 2004. Uh, And then after that, I jumped up now. We had one analyst and then we expanded it, you know, into a, a much bigger operation. And um, I was talking to sporting director of Tottenham a a few days ago and he was saying they have now 21 analysts, I think. Wow, um, and gosh. when I got there, we had, we had, we in, in in 2005 we had we had one, and then we went to three, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it goes back if you if you put everything together, I think it goes back to probably ni- 1993 or 1994. Gosh, and so, so obviously it's a industry that's moving very quickly. Do you think it's at that point where it's it's kind of where it's going to be the foreseeable future? Or do you see it growing even more? I think it will grow more in terms of um, of the tools that we will be using, and it yeah. will improve, you know, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, I think we 
there there'll be an input on on more and be, more and better camera cameras. You know, they are talking about. We are now at 4K cameras, and I was talking to some companies the other day that are talking about 7K cameras. I mean, the future is 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 incredible what we'll be able to use. I'm not sure the number of people will increase. I think the 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 quality of the work they will deliver will be even better. Uh, I think we'll come to a point as well where uh, we we be more much more efficient in terms of. The, the, the communication between the analyst, uh, the, uh, the performance analysis department and the coaches will be even smoother in the future, helped by product. Like, you know, if you, I was looking at Stats Age, uh, a few days ago, uh, which, which is an incredible product. And the people from Stats were telling me the, the clubs that you see the more, the best are definitely the ones where they, there is the most alignment between the coaching staff and the performance analysis department. So I, I think I think the clubs that are going to use it the best will be the ones that can master the technology and the technologies that will come in the market in the next five years will probably blow everyone away. Mm. Blow, sorry, blow everyone out of the water, uh, and then and then it will be it will definitely be alignment. So if you want, you know, being efficient will mean being aligned between coaching and performance analysis. That's the way I see it. I could be wrong. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a sports scientist or I'm not a scientist uh, altogether, uh, <laughs> but th- that's the way I see it. Interesting. Um, so something I've got to ask you, Damien, um, is about your scouting experience at Arsenal. And I'm sure this is a question that clubs have probably been asking themselves for the last two decades, trying to you know, get ahead of the game as such. But how, how were you able to find such a unique talent pool that no one else was seemingly able to. Was it partly down to you and the club being ahead of the game? Did you have inside tips? Was there something else? I mean, was it just purely a, a, a special group of people that happened to be in the right place at the right time? I think the first thing that comes to my mind, and again, we didn't call it that way at the time, but I was very, very, very conscientious that we are this, and that was priceless. It was the alignment between the board in David Dean, Arsene, and so the coaching and the scouting. So when Steve Rowley and myself, and later on the, the, the other scouts, uh, Steve Rowley, the chief scout and myself, when we were watching a player, uh, you know, after a game or half a game, we could say, this is a play for Arsene, or it's not a play for Arsene. And Arsenal, and Arsene and Arsenal developed such a strong playing identity and playing style that we could very, very quickly see if a player will fit or not fit the, what Arsene wanted. Um, I, I think that was the main, the main reason of the success. And, and I will go even beyond this. When I was watching a player, or oh, we still, we, I'll give you an example of Van Persie. Van Persie is a perfect example. So we watched Van Persie, I don't know how many times with Steve. We, we went to see, I remember, he, I went to see him once at, uh, I think he was at 20 or Utrecht. He was played for Feyenoord. He, he got he got sent off after five minutes, you know. I traveled all the way, and then he got sent off, and and then uh, and then I remember changing my flight and joining and, and flying back to Paris, rushing back to Paris to try to watch the Paris Marseille game in the evening, which I did. Um, then Steve went to watch him, and he started the fight with Ajax uh, Feyenoord in the twenty threes against Ajax, and the fans invited the pitch at the reserve game because of his behavior, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. 
pretty much all the all the signal, all all all. Well, I would say all the noise to use to use a, a, a data language. You know, all the noise was telling us not to sign in, but we saw some strong strong signal, um, and the signal was telling us that we we should sign in because our sense coaching could change him into something special. Mm-hmm. And so it's not only that we were aligned uh, in terms of coaching and scouting, it's that we knew that our sense coaching could change a player or develop a player that didn't exist when we were watching him, if that, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and so when people say, you know, you found Van Persie, yes, but Van Persie's success is 5% scouting or 10% scouting and 90% our sense coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the alignment was was to the point where we knew we knew that bringing the, that player into our the environment of Arsenal at the time into that type of competitiveness of training, that quality of training of the players who are in the team, and and with the and if you put the potential of that player into that environment, then we could have a player. And when I say a player, I mean a world-class player, mm. because that was the goal. Um, so I think, and then it's interesting this because when I went to, when I went to, and then I move on from Arsenal to Saint Etienne, and then to Saint Etienne, uh, from Saint Etienne to Tottenham, and then unfortunately it took me a while to understand because when so I'm watching a game, I'm watching a player. Now I'm now working with for Saint Etienne or Spurs, and I'm working with a different manager and different coaching and set up in a different environment but i'm but it took me a while to at least one season at, at spurs actually to say to myself hold on a minute but what you you want to bring this player at tottenham or at saint etienne you see its deficiencies you know the potential and you think that with coaching you this player could become something different but the coaching is not the one that was our arsenal so forget about this Forget about and and I had to realign myself mm. with like change the chip in my head from Arsene Wenger coaching to coaching of other managers I work with that was not as good. So therefore, if I if 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 I was to bring Van Persie to Tottenham in two thousand and five or six, he would not have the success that he had at Arsenal right. just because of the coaching. Sure, and that was that took me a while. Thankfully, I didn't make too many recruitment mistakes in the process, but uh, it, it took me a while. But then I had to re- to adjust myself, um, and then and then the other aspect. But they are, actually, I think they are almost secondary to to the rest. Yeah, at the, yeah. At the time, to answer some of your questions, we were the most seven scouting network. We were the clubs who had the most the, the highest number of, of scouts abroad. We. We had, we were very stable. So Steve and I worked for seven years together. I, I knew Arsene many years before, for many years before. Um, uh, we were the first ones to go to Africa. And um, when I say first one, I mean Premier League club. So we did a, we did a partnership with the academy in, in Ivory Coast in, in where we got, we got, uh, Kolotoué from. And then after I left, they got Ebué. Uh, we got Yaya Toure. It's just I didn't want to join Arsenal, but we had him. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, in a lot of areas, we were kind of pioneers, and and then you had the ability of David Dean to do deals. So it was just a, a mix of 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 
different things, right? But but I'm convinced now, looking back that and, and, and talking with experience, that this alignment was was crucial to our success. So when when you're scouting, I mean, other than that raw potential that you look for that you think the coach could bring out in a player, is there any specific quality that you look for in a player before anything else? I will say in the last few years, the first the first uh, filter of recruitment, in recruitment, the first filter is character and personality. Uh, so I, now I spend more time, more time because of analysis, because of user, because we can use data, because and analyze data because you know you I, I when I was at Saint Etienne I had no scout I was on my own uh, and 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 now you can have fifty scouts in some clubs or forty five scouts or or five scouts like at Tenavache which is, is is a good number so you've got people who can do the groundwork so therefore I spend my time more about finding out about the player character and personality and whether is a culture fit to what we are trying to achieve than to watch the player himself. Wow. Um, and I, I'm, I'm convinced that this is, that, that's been the biggest change recently in recent years is, you know, when, I always say when I was at Arsenal, we're looking at, first we're looking at technique, then we're looking at intelligence, then the physical ability, and then the behavior and the, the, the character and the personality. But that's, that I, 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 so if you do a kind, if you, if you can think about a pyramid and then, but then the pyramid has, has totally switched on its head. And now the first thing is character. That's the first filter. If a player doesn't pass this filter, no matter how good he is, that you, you, we wouldn't sign him. And then comes the rest. Then, then comes technique, then comes intelligence. Then comes, you know, awareness, decision making, all of this because the game got, gets quicker and quicker and quicker. Uh, so the ability of players to make quick decisions, that's what you will look at in the, in the first place. But everything which is related to background, upbringing, family, uh, environment, entourage, as we say now, basically to say, you know, agents and, mm -hmm. and, and people around the agents. Uh, that, that's the first thing we look at. So I'm sorry if I disappoint you with not giving you a technical answer to this. No, that's fantastic. But, but the psychology, 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 I don't know if I should say psychology, but or, or profile of the, of the, of the, the individual has taken over the rest. So I'll give you an example. Eh? More and more in the performance space. So I was before the Super Bowl, after I left Fenerbahce, I traveled you know, around the world, try to always keep learning and meet people and see what was going on. Um, I, I So I, I traveled to the U.S. And, and to see the Super Bowl. And, and we did a conference with a few of us the, the day before. Um, football people, rugby, NFL, basketball, uh, 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 tennis. And uh, the, 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 the tennis person was uh, Ivan Lindell, uh, the, the former coach of Andy Murray. Wow. And he was, he was saying, um, he, he, he said something very interesting because it's something I've been working on for a while. He was saying that he, before he chooses to, to work with a player, he wants to make sure the player has failed before or had a trauma in his life. And because in his experience, he links trauma to success, to success. 
And and I told him I felt exactly the same thing. And and most of the players who, who are successful at the very top level have had some sort of trauma in their lives. So it, I, mean, I don't mean like trauma in their personal life or private life. It can be it can be a player was uh, everybody who told him you'll never be successful, uh, you'll never make it, uh-huh. you know. And then and then they get to the very top. So that's one example of the thing that I'm I'm looking at when when we scout a player. I need to understand. I'm trying to understand his personality to see what drives him. Whether he's being driven by intrinsic motivation, hence very often being driven by a trauma, or whether he's driven by an extrinsic motivation, which is is looking for fame, for money, for uh, you know, for uh, having a comfortable life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, not because he's driven internally. Uh, by success, so that's one of the things that that I look at in detail. That's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. You, I mean, as you've mentioned, you've recruited players from all over the world. What are the challenges besides you know the obvious sort of language barrier when you're looking at bringing players from different countries and different football cultures? It's the portability of talent. So I call the portability of talent. So the difficulty is to be able to identify what you see on the pitch. Uh, in Holland, in, when you watch a striker in Holland, is it is is it? It can be this player replicate what he does in Holland into the Premier League. And I, I I use this example, but I could say about Brazil, or about Ivory Coast, or Japan, or whatever. So that's probably the main challenge. Uh, it does this skill set can travel to a different country, a different club, a different league, and be as efficient. Uh, that's the difficulty. And, and the higher the level and the more difficult it is to assess. And also because the Premier League is so difficult, it's so competitive, it's so tense, uh, that's even a bigger challenge. So the reason I use the Dutch example is because recently I was watching some clips of a young striker in Holland. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, will you be a Van Nistelrooy or will you be a Cageman or Dirk Kite or Alves? Or players like that mm. who were scoring, you know, between twenty and thirty or forty goals a season in Holland, and then come to the Premier League, they can't score a goal. Dirk Kite had a fantastic season, but he was signed as a striker and never plays as a striker. Never played as a striker. Mm. He had a fantastic seasons at Feyenoord as a striker before he went to Liverpool, but then he was never played as a striker, and he could not replicate the, his goal tally from Holland into the Premier League. So this portability of talent. Is the most challenging thing, um, and then you and then and then you try to understand, you know, will the player fit into your culture? Will the player fit into the the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my view on that has changed as well. Uh, I, I I really think it cannot be. We cannot expect. We cannot sign a player from from you know the other side of the planet. Uh, and get him in into the club and say, okay, now it's up to you to adapt. I think, I think it's the, up to the clubs to breach the gap. And the clubs that are most successful in the recruitment, I think, are the clubs that know how to breach the gap between the players, the players' culture and their culture. Um, and very often, clubs still now, but but in the past, big clubs used to say, you know, we brought you here, and now you need to sort it out. You need to find out by yourself. Well, we, we are facing with 
new generation, you know, different type of people, different type of, of youngsters who grew up differently than when I grew up or when my parents grew up. Uh, and I don't think it's fair to bring a player into an environment and say, okay, now you have to sort it. I think this bridging the gap, uh, this cultural gap, it cannot only be on the player, it's got to be the club going towards the player. Mm. So it's a thin line between doing this and doing too much. Sometimes we do too much as clubs. We want to do everything with the player and then the players lose, kind of lose his autonomy or his, 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 his ability to make decisions for himself and to think for himself. But at the same time, leaving, dropping the player in there, like, you know, like you have to sort it is, is not the right thing. Um, I always have this, this example in mind when we signed Kevin Prince Boateng at, at Spurs. Um, so we signed him. He didn't want to come in the first place. He had the choice between Seville and us. And he wanted to go to Seville, but we had beat Seville. So Erta Berlin said to the player, you go to Spurs and you're not going to Seville because Spurs paying more uh, on the transfer fee. Sorry, I think it was it, it, there was not much difference, but there was significant difference on the transfer fee. So the player comes, he's 19. He's never came out of Berlin. He was born in Berlin, Ghanaian in the regions, uh, grew up into an area with African people around him, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then we take him, we make him a millionaire overnight. He comes to London, we drop him into London, into this club. Uh, we big players around him, massive expectations. And then he fails. Yeah. And then, and then, but why did he fail? Well, you know, you can, you can blame him. But personally, I blame myself because this player, with the talent he had and the the career he had after that, there was no way he should no way he should have failed at Tottenham. But we didn't know how to bridge the gap to him and bring our culture to him. That's so interesting, um, Damien. I'd like to move on to the roles that you've had sort of in the last so 10, 15 years. Um, before before I sort of delve into this at all, it'd be great for you just a very quickly explain the differences or if there are any in the roles between a technical director, sporting director and director of football. <laughs> I think there is not much difference. that I don't think there is any difference to be honest with you. I, I think it's just a title that changes from one club to another. Okay. Um I never felt there was much difference. The only thing I will say is when I when I got to talk to to when when I went to Saint Etienne in two thousand and four, straight from a, a scouting role, I was not equipped to to do the full scope of the job. So my job remit at Saint Etienne was, you know, dealing with the academy, dealing with scouting, uh, dealing with transfers, uh, doing players contract with the CEO. Uh, but but that was kind of it. And then and, and and I don't think I would have been able to do more. But then the jobs I went in later on and starting for Tottenham. It was like the job remit and the scope, the job remit and the scope of the job was much, much wider. So you're talking about performance analysis, sports science, medical, academy, academy recruitment. Uh, you, most of the time I sat on the board of the club or, or, or the executive team or executive committee. Um, so suddenly it becomes a much, much bigger role. Uh, so it's not so much about the title. The titles can change. What's important is it's in it. Uh, so I'll give you an example, which is not related to me, but Chelsea at the time where Frank Anderson was sporting director, mm -hmm. Mike Ford was director of football operation. 
and they split. So the job I was doing at Tottenham, at Chelsea, they split it in two. So Mike Ford was in charge of everything related to performance, whilst Frank was in charge of everything related to scouting, uh, dealing with the, the, the management of the, the manager day to day, et cetera, et cetera. So he really, so Frank was sporting director at Chelsea as I was sporting director or director of football at Liverpool or at Tottenham, but it's just the job remit was different. So what, what do you look for from a club and specifically a head coach when you're working as a director of football? Leadership. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think I came to the conclusion a few years ago. I mean, quite a few years ago now. I was doing a search when I was working as a consultant for a Premier League club uh, for a manager position. And then I said, I said to that club, I, I said, look, the, the first thing, forget about playing style and is he good tactically? Can he get the players feed? Does he, does he make good training sessions? Does he put on good training sessions? Look at the leader. What type of leader do you want? And to identify that type of leadership, you need to understand what you are as a football club. What's your DNA? What's your history? What's your tradition? Where are you? Where do you want to go? What's your business model? Uh, do you want to win our coast? Do you want to sign stars? Do you want to make stars? Et cetera, et cetera. And then once you know who you are, then you can identify what type of leadership you need. So identify first the leader, then you identify the coach. So that's the first thing. So it's leadership. Mm. Well, so what, I mean, if you're recruiting to a specific model, obviously, I mean, obviously there are some clear positives to that, but are there any drawbacks when a club is looking to recruit a certain type of player? A player? Or, or uh, we're going to go, we're going to go player purely because I'd just like to sort of ask about like, for, for example, um, something that, I thought might be the case. Let's say uh, if you're, let's say at Liverpool, where you're looking at sort of bringing in young British talent, because that's your model. Are clubs therefore going right? I know exactly what kind of player they're after. Um, this is their model. Mm-hmm. We can set the, you know, transfer fees higher. Or is that something that you've experienced? Uh, yeah, you can you can go into you can be in a situation where a, a club knows you are, you're after a player. And then, and then that club knows that this player can become a very good asset. Mm. Uh, so they, they will, for example, they will, for instance, push the price up because of this, or because they know you are desperate to do something like, to do something. And well, I mean, Jordan Anderson is a very good example. So, uh, he's a player that when, when we were at Liverpool, Kenny and I, we, they, you know, we thought he's, he's exactly the, the player we need is a young British talent. He's a he's a, he could, he's a captain in the making, and and Sunderland took advantage of this because they drive they drove the price the price up, and I paid more than I was planning to pay at the beginning. But at the same time, I knew we were getting even though at the time you know I got killed for the amount of money we paid. I knew exactly that we were it was a bargain. Mm-hmm. I was convinced that it was a bargain. Uh, so it's just about. You know, you're bluffing, you play poker, uh, people think, I remember bumping into a Stunderland director a few years after, or maybe a year after, 18 months after, he said, we, we screwed you on that deal. You so much overpaid for this Jordan Anderson. I said, you really? He said, oh yeah. I said, well, time will tell. <laughs> it certainly has. <laughs> um, I'm sure, I'm sure this question would be interesting to people outside of football as well. Um, just in normal day-to-day life at work. But I imagine that as a director of football, you obviously have to make decisions that aren't going to be popular with everyone. 
um, particularly when you're dealing with players and coaches. How, what's your advice for handling these situations and preventing them from escalating, maintaining your authority and your role? So it's interesting because uh, I've got, so, you know, the, the series on Netflix, The Last Dance, about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, the, the 97, 98 season. So I, I lived in the States when I was a kid and I'm, 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 I love U.S. sports and, and Jordan and the Bulls were very successful. At the time. You know, I was, I was 17, 18, 19. Uh, and I woke up at the time when I was back in France. I woke up for at, over at night for every game that the Bulls played in every final. Wow. So I had a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> um, and 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 then the friends I've got I've got in the in the US I kept from from the time when I lived there. Uh, we were texting each other after the the first two episodes, and they say, "Okay, how much? How much?" Um, so the the, 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 the the series describes very well the conflict between uh, the players and management and, and the, the general manager, yeah. uh, which, which is the equivalent, equivalent of the sporting director in, in, in European in European sports. Um, and my friends were saying, so how much this general manager, how much is there in you? And, what, and did you have any conflict? So my friend was saying, can you describe a, a Komori Babatov conflict or a Komori Torres conflict or something like this. And, and I said to them, actually, I never, uh, it never came to a point where, where, you know, you can, I had conflict and you, you, you almost on a regular basis, you will have conflict because the player is crossing some, some, some red lines in terms of discipline or because of contracts or, or disagreements or because the player wants to, wants to leave the club and you want to keep him. But, um, I think the way you handle it, first of all, when you're a sporting director, you need to understand that you kind of have an ego. So it's, it's, let me rephrase this. If you, if you want to get to the top level at any sport and any position, you need to have an ego because at some point you need to say, I can do this. And to, for you to be able to say, I can do that job and I'm going to master I've got enough of the ability to master my craft to be able to deliver what this club is asking me to deliver. So you need some ego. But you cannot be a sporting director or general manager in the US and have a bigger ego than players and have a bigger ego than the coach. When I was young, I saw in, in the job and in my life, I saw it very differently. And I know in some occasions my ego took, took over and that was a mistake, a big mistake. And after a few years, I understood that the, the manager is the face of the franchise, is the face of this organization globally. Okay, so you are not the face, he is, and there is no reason for you to be the face. And then the players are, are, are the ones that make you win games. They are the ones who are playing, it's not you. So they are more important than you. So once you put your ego on the side and you understand that there are people whose face should be on TV more than yours and, and your, their name should be on TV more than yours, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a massive step because then you avoid the conflict. If you put your ego on the side and, and you make people understand that they are the ones who are important, then it helps massively dealing with conflict. That's my experience. And then it's just how do you deal with it after that day to day? You know, if you, if you, to, if you treat people in the wrong way, you will you will have you will you will get a massive backlash. 
and I don't think there is a, I can give you like a magic formula at this. It's just, I think it's a lot is around ego and, and a lot is around day-to-day -day management of the people, knowing the individual, that's very, very, very important. So you, you know that that player, you can leave him alone and he'll do his job and that player, you cannot leave him alone and you have to be on his back day-to-day. And that player, sometimes you will ask for help, but most of the time he won't ask for help. So knowing the individual, knowing his family, knowing his background, knowing his from his frame of of mind on a almost on a on a daily basis, but almost on an hour mm. basis. That's also very very important in order to avoid all those conflicts. The 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 last question I'd, I'd like to ask you, Damien, and. and... You've given so many things to to really um, think about here, and and lots of advice to to apply into uh, coaching and to scouting. But is there one particular piece of advice that you wish that you'd had at the start of your journey? Uh, beside the one I just talked about about yeah. ego, uh, I think it's about and and it's related to ego. Uh, I think it's a it's it's about learning. Uh, it's about self-awareness and self-learning and self-development. So do you, you come to a situation where, you know, you are very, very, you've been recruited because I was recruited at Arsenal because I knew Arsenal Wenger, but then I stay on because I do my job well. And then I'm being recruited by one of the biggest clubs in France because of my reputation. And then my reputation and my work in Sentinel gets me the job at Tottenham, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So you are on this successful path. And then if you're not careful, you, you stop questioning yourself. You stop learning. You stop your self-awareness is not good enough. So if there is one thing I didn't do well in the first part of my career, it's interesting because I had this discussion with Daniel Levy many, many years after I left Tottenham. Um, he, he, he said to me, he said, well, Daniel, you've changed. I said, Daniel, I'm, I've learned and I'll keep learning. And I think the, the, the older you get, the wiser you become. And the more you understand that you cannot stop learning. Uh, and I'm doing this at the moment. You know, I've been, I've been, I listen about you mid, mid January. And since then, I've attended conferences. I read books. Uh, I'm watching players. I'm looking at what products kind of come in on the market on the, performance analysis side, on the fitness side, on goalkeeper coaching, what, what's going to be the goalkeeper of the mm -hmm. future? You know, I'm looking at what is being done by FIFA instructors or stuff like that on the goalkeeper side. I'm trying, I'm looking at what is being done around the world in different academies. So this aspect of constantly trying to learn, self-develop yourself, realize where you are, as a person, where you are in your job, where you are, your personality, your self-awareness. I think that's the biggest advice that I would have had to love to get in, in the, when I started. Um, and he goes on, if you break it down like day to day, he goes, so when I, when, when I wake up in the morning, I, it's, how can I say, when you are in a in a leadership position, you, you, you have to be, a, a, a consistency in the way you lead. And if you come in the morning and then you are in a terrible mood or you are angry or you are whatever, and that will spread on everyone at the training ground. 
So trying to be consistent in the way you behave. And if you want to come angry, you know why you are, you do this and there is a purpose. Instead of sulking and not talking to anyone because you lost the game the day before, you don't talk to anyone for two days, which I, which I used to do. And it's a massive mistake. So it's also almost like knowing yourself enough to adjust your mood as a leader or your attitude as a, do your mood first when you wake yeah. up in the morning. And then your attitude as a leader, when you walk into the building, uh, that, that's also very, very important. But it's about knowing yourself and knowing the, the, as a, as, as a leader, how your attitude and your, be- your behavior can affect and impact people ar- around you. That's also, it's part of the self-awareness learning process that I, that I didn't understand or didn't have or couldn't find. When I was younger in the job, and and I think now for this I'm in a better place. Brilliant, thank you, thank you. I mean that that brings us to the end of the interview. I'd just like to thank you, Damien, for coming on and speaking so openly about your career and the processes that go on behind closed doors, as well as your insightful takes on analysis. Um, I've got to say I find your desire to learn and inquisitive look toward the world around you totally inspiring. So um, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, thank you. Also, thank you for, for listening, everyone. If there's anyone you'd like to hear us get onto the podcast or any area of the game you're dying to hear about, then please do get in touch with us at Total Analysis on Twitter. Otherwise, stay safe and see you soon. Bye.